Hi, I'm James Esposito, and this is New. Hi, I'm James Esposito, and this is New Books in History. I just finished speaking with David Edgerton about his new book, The Rise and Fall of the British Nation, A 20th Century History. This book was released by Alan Lane in June 2018. The United Kingdom is often supposed to be unique in its aversion to nationalism as an ideology, but also as policy. Edgerton explores an alternative view of British experience in the 20th century, with a new history that shows the creation of a specific British nation, and its fall as a story of power and change in the vein of continental powers like Germany or the Soviet Union. Along the way, Edgerton examines British capitalism, militarism and state, as well as conflicting ideas of political economy. The United Kingdom's unique position as a liberal, capitalist, and global power at the beginning of the century shifts towards a new socioeconomics of national development through the experience of total war. Britain is rebuilt after 1945 as a distinctive economic, political, and social unit within national borders. Britain's nationalist project reaches its height in the 1960s with a political culture dedicated to domestic economic development, as well as industrial productivism. Far from repeating old narratives of the creation of a post-war welfare state, Keynesianism, or a managed decline, Edgerton shows us a vision of a country that is post-imperial, nationalistic, militaristic, and highly confident in its talent in science and technology. Britain leaves in the 1970s in economic as well as political turmoil. The nation is reformed again towards a liberal, globalist orientation by the Thatcher government. It increasingly integrates itself into the European and global economy, barriers to trade break down, and the nation as a coherent economic unit ends as the United Kingdom becomes a financial center largely for the capital of others. Along with economic change, the return of subnational politics in Scotland and in Wales emerged to challenge the authority of the state. Edgerton's book challenges the reader to rethink their assumptions about what Britishness is by uncovering hidden materiality embedded within the British nation, as well as the hidden role of capitalists, ideologues, and the military, long marginalized by earlier historical accounts. It was a pleasure to talk to David, and I hope you enjoy the show. David, welcome to the show. Hi, delighted to be on. Um, Before we dive into the book, uh, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Um, What made you uh, want to become a historian? Well, I'm rather an unusual historian. I didn't study history at school beyond the age of 15, and I didn't study history as an undergraduate either, except uh, informally. Uh, So my decision to become a a historian came rather later uh, in life than it did for most uh, uh, people who write write history books. And it was driven, I suppose, always by a concern with uh, current affairs, with, uh, with, with politics. Um, and I, I, I gave myself, I suppose, a pretty eclectic education as a as a historian. Okay, so, so did you study uh, journalism or, or like international relations when you were doing your your undergraduate degree, or did you just uh, have something else that you you? you I studied chemistry, in fact. Oh, okay. But, okay. <laughs> in. Uh, uh, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a place, uh, Oxford, at a time when one could spend most of one's time, uh, you know, out of the lab, uh, out of the lecture room, um, uh, reading, essentially. Okay. Yeah. No. That that's that's really interesting. A lot of the um, science and technology historians I've worked with, um, either as mentors or as friends, 
art chemist by training, which is, yeah. is interesting. How did this particular book come about? Um, you know, I, we had talked earlier that it's it's has many of the same um, aspects of your previous work, but it is also sort of a, sort of larger, more all-encompassing work in itself. Well, the simple answer is that uh, my publisher asked me whether I wanted to write a history of 20th century Britain. Uh, and I jumped at the chance because the history of the nation is a standard form which appeals to, to many people. Uh, and I thought it would be a good vehicle for uh, um, putting forward uh, uh, the, the ideas that, that you mentioned that appear in, uh, in, in previous books and to put them forward both to a broader academic audience and also a, a broader uh, uh, public audience uh, as well. Yeah, in the introduction, you make a note, um, just sort of a brief brief note saying that like historians should try at least to attempt to, um, you know, write sort of towards uh, international affairs and towards sort of political life in their nation to sort of um, reassess it. This book is sort of a reassessment of a lot of the sort of, um, you know, hackney tropes of British, modern Britain, British history. Yes, absolutely. And I mean, another reason for, 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 for writing it is that uh, I felt for a long time a certain dissatisfaction with the general treatments of 20th century British uh, history, uh, both in the form of textbooks and also in the form of university and school curricula. So there was something I wanted to say, as it were, against standard understandings um, that had to be said at, at the level of the, of the national history over over a century. Sure, sure. There, there is a huge business in sort of, um, you know, like the culture industry and sort of, you know, rehashing these sort of familiar, um, you know, familiar themes and, and familiar ideas of what Britain is and who the British are and what their place in sort of world history is. Exactly. And uh, uh, you know, repetition gives arguments authority. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think post-Brexit, things, things have both got worse and got better in that uh, a lot of arguments that, that have been made about the nature of the British experience in, in the recent past uh, have been shown, at least for uh, uh, many people's arguments, have been shown to be wrong. Mm -hmm. um, uh, on the other hand, certain perhaps submerged kinds of histories have come to the surface uh, as arguments for uh, leaving the, um, the, uh, the European Union. Now, on the left, I think there's a tendency to think that what's what's come to the surface is a is a is a horrible imperialism. Uh, that, that Brexit is a is the is the latest manifestation of a deep-seated imperialism. But I think that's wrong. Actually, I think what's 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 resurfaced is a, is a certain um, global liberalism. Uh, the notion of a global Britain, uh, a Britain trading with the whole world, open to the whole world, you know, radical free trading, mm. and you can see that in many of the in many of the statements of the of the Brexiteers. Sure. sure. So history history is uh, British. The standard British histories have begun to seem uh, inadequate in the light of in the light of Brexit. Um, just sort of talking about the the Brexit angle. Um, a lot of this this book, and, and I think this is you do a fantastic job with this, is trying to get to the material and how the nation in in your mind comes mid-century as a sort of material, uh, not revolution, but a sort of material development and and developmental economics that a lot of British historians sort of 
you know, those, those sorts of ideas are other places. You know, they might be sort of confined to, to Central Europe or the developing world. Um, but you really sort of bring it home and sort of talk about big industrial conglomerates like uh, Imperial Chemical Industries and these sort of other incredibly uh, technical but also sort of incredibly um, intensive and large uh, national efforts to industrialize and become more self-sufficient. Yeah, that's right. If you're writing about the Soviet Union or Germany or India, uh, uh, you would write about about dams and rivers and great new power stations and chemical companies and autarky and all these things. But uh, when we come to Britain, no, uh, we've had a very abstract uh, economic history of the United, United Kingdom uh, and indeed a sense that these big things like dams and great chemical combines were to be found in other places, but not in the United Kingdom, and that was precisely the problem. So, yes, I, I did want to write a, a material history, really material history of, of what every British person would have known uh, in the past. And every British person knew the significance of coal to the British economy or of shipping. Uh, would have known the names of great enterprises like Imperial Chemical Industries. It's just that we've forgotten uh, sure, sure. That, <laughs> all that, and we've 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 forgotten even as cultural historians that that was how people understood uh, the world and Britain's place in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and so many of, of the towns in the north, but also uh, you know in, in the south as well, are are you know um, you know factory towns or, or shipbuilding towns like uh, Birkenhead outside Liverpool is this massive uh, you know. Shipyards that made, you know, military weapons and shipping, but also commercial shipping that was very important to the British economy. Yes, absolutely, absolutely, uh, uh, and it's um, uh, it's 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 a very peculiar thing the extent to which uh, modern history has moved away from the material has come back in in something called studies of material culture. Mm-hmm. But material culture is more culture than 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 material. Sure. So I think there is there is room for. Uh, for taking material history, perhaps even materialist uh, history, seriously once again. And again, I think Brexit helps here. Suddenly, uh, questions of trade, of tariffs, of non-tariff barriers, uh, of regulations, all all become the stuff of uh, daily political discourse. Sure, sure. And and we can get back into that towards the end of the show where we talk about, you know, the year 2000 and, and what the sort of future holds or our contemporary world kind of holds here. Um, but interestingly, uh, you start the book with um, a discussion of uh, political history of, of uh, the turn of the century and the importance of what conservatives and liberals believed, which something you didn't do that in some of your other work. Did that sort of come out organically or was that something that you wanted to work on before? Well, I've always been interested in uh, political economic ideas, uh, and I certainly have always wanted to, to, to expand my knowledge of that, of that area. But it struck me that uh, I wanted to, to put politics and political economy right up front in the book because I want to argue that these forms of understanding have been profoundly influential in shaping our more general understanding of uh, of the British experience in, in the twentieth in the twentieth century, uh, and that some some of these political economies and the power, the imaginative power of these political economies, has been rather lost mm-hmm. in, um, uh, in in over over the, over the, over the course of time. Certainly, rather lost in in much of the much of the historiography. 
So I wanted really to, to uh, as other historians have done, to, to, to bring to the fore uh, the, the, the range of ideas that, that uh, underlay British liberalism, uh, um, uh, its, its globality, its anti-imperialism, indeed its, anti, its anti-nationalism as well. Mm-hmm. And to contrast that with what I take to be the, the, uh, the great opposition to that, in, to that liberal program in, in the first third of the, of the 20th century, which is an imperialist program. So these programs are in contention. Uh, in the in the first half of the of the century, that's a rather different approach to the older political histories, which essentially take conservatism and imperialism to be broadly simply reactionary, and the progressive forces in in the British case were first the Liberal Party, and then certainly by the interwar years the Labour Party. So it's a very liberal, Labour focused uh, focused account. I want to stress, for example, that um, into the early 1930s. Uh, Labour is a free trading party. That's absolutely central to its to, to its to its ideology and its attractiveness to many uh, to many intellectuals in in particular. So um, uh, um, putting political economy in and putting both liberal and imperialist political economy uh, in right at, right at the beginning is uh, is indicative of a broader rethinking of uh, the history of British politics. Yeah, sure. No, I, I, I really like that um, part. And you also talk about, um, you know, the the conservatives are an imperialist party, but also they have these sort of semi-altarchic slash, um, you know, imperial economics in their, their platform and what they believe. And that, that's usually sort of not talked about in, in that way, for sure. Um, in the beginning of the book in the introduction, you talk about how much of, of your book is an exploration of the right and what they believe, but also what British capitalists, who they are, where they are, and what they believe, um, which is, I, I think, a great approach um, to your work. Uh, did those ideas sort of come out of Brexit or were you sort of interested in sort of right wing thinking or conservative thinking you know, going into the project? Oh yes, no, no, no. This is this is really uh, nothing to do with Brexit. These ideas have, have been uh, uh, important to me for for a long time, uh, but I've been able to, uh, as it were, think about them in a in a much broader, more general uh, frame in the writing of this of this book. Uh, in my Warfare State book, for example, I, I developed the thesis that the state, the conservative state, was uh, was technically creative, and that liberals on the left haven't been able to. To see that, uh, and, it, and in and in this book, I make a very general claim for the creativity of the right, that they need to be seen as originators of, of, of new and important ideas. The Conservative Party is the originator of new policies which are put into practice, not merely a responder to the rise of uh, the, uh, the welfare state. And similarly, uh, British capitalists have been hugely creative in uh, uh, in in. in Coming forward with, uh, with 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 new machines, new products, um, new kinds of politics. Uh, uh, indeed, in, uh, one of the things that most surprised me in um, in the course of, of my research was the extent to which the British House of Commons and the British House of Lords before 1945 were dominated by business people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and extraordinarily, that's been written out of the out of the historiography. Uh, even in the case of Stanley Baldwin, the Prime Minister. 
uh, who is the managing director of the one of the largest steelworks in steel making companies, not simply a single factory, steel making companies in in uh, in, in Europe. I mean, he's not quite Krupp or Tissen, but he he is a major major industrialist who happens to be British Prime Minister as well. Yeah, um, uh, I think that's a really cool um, thing that that sort of gets lost. Certainly, I didn't, you know, I you know read a lot of British historiography and never really thought about who these capitalists are, what are they doing, and how productive they are, and, and what they're, you know, what they're investing in. You you make pains in this book to sort of focus on this sort of sort of false dichotomy between the city of London and financial interests that have, you know, uh, either interests in, you know, British colonies or British trading partners like Argentina uh, and sort of the northern industrial base and how, you know, a long time the left sort of said, oh, well, you know, the reason why we're in this sort of industrial decline is because we're too focused, or our capitalists are too focused on externalities and not focused on, on what's going on here. Yes, uh, one of the, the the core arguments of the of the book, uh, and I don't make it particularly explicit. This is a book, uh, uh, at least in part, for the, for, for the general public, is an argument with the dominant uh, left traditions of understanding of 20th century. And that tradition holds that British capitalism is peculiar and it's global and uh, especially imperial orientation, that it's financial rather than industrial, uh, that this global orientation has led to the weakening of British domestic capitalism, which has led to inevitably to a general uh, economic uh, decline. Uh, so uh, uh, I take this as to be the most interesting uh, general thesis that has been about 20th century British uh, history is associated with Tom, Major Tom Nairn, uh, Perry, uh, Perry Anderson, uh, Peter Kane and Tony, uh, Tony Hopkins, uh, Eric Hobsbawm, many, many, many others have, have advanced arguments of this, uh, this sort. And I show that while it is the case that British capitalism was indeed uh, peculiarly uh, uh, global, this did not mean it was essentially financial. Mm. Uh, it, 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 it was global in a very material way as well. There were British factories, uh, British farms, British mines, uh, British utilities all over the world. And of course, they, they were connected to Britain by ships, again, a, a, a very non-financial form of, uh, um, of capitalism. On top of that, there, there was, in fact, a great national uh, moment of industrial investment, of national economic uh, development, contrary to the thesis of, the, of, of this left, which argued that was never possible and did happen. Sure, yeah. No, uh, so, so my argument is, is actually, look, it did happen. Mm -hmm. So the thesis is kind of doubly wrong. It's wrong in that it misconstrues the nature of British global capitalism, and it's also wrong in that it it, um, it denies what actually happened in the United Kingdom that for a time anyway a genuinely national uh, industrial capitalism flourished. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So so um, you know getting towards the to, towards the 1950s we can you know go there to talk about so so how how in your mind do you identify sort of the British nation as as you construct it? You you talk about how. In the 19, from the 1960s to 1980s, there is this time where the state directs through planning, but also through nationalization and other, um, you know, import controls and sort of other macroeconomic 
uh, efforts to develop the industrial base of the country. Exactly. So the usual characterization is of a, a, a post-war state that is, quotes Keynesian and a welfare state, and that it, that it therefore, in this argument, fails to intervene industrially to, to develop uh, uh, modern, modern industry. Uh, my argument is that, that we have um, overemphasized Keynesianism uh, and, and welfare, uh, and we should look at a kind of post-war productionism, if you like. There is, a, there is a national uh, productivism that is shared by both left and uh, uh, left and right, mm -hmm. and that national productivism is really very different from what had gone uh, before. In that, um, before uh, um, the, 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 the the mid 1940s, uh, and especially before before 1914, the British government was to a very great degree indifferent as to where manufacturers or food or whatever it might be uh, came from. I mean, the, the Britishness uh, of uh, material in circulation within the British economy was, was not really an issue, but it really did become a central issue for politics after, after 1945. So we get, we get a, a, a push for self-sufficiency in food, uh, uh, attempts to do the same for for energy through 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 nuclear power, more generally, a deep commitment to the development of national industry as as, as, a, as opposed to being uh, an importing uh, importing nation. Now, why why do I why do I describe this as uh, as uh, being um, why do I describe the, the broader context as being the creation of, of the British nation? Well, because I argue that bef before roughly 1945. Uh, it's hard to argue that there is something called the British nation which has economic as well as political boundaries for two reasons. One is the centrality of free trade to British economic thinking. But the other is uh, empire. Uh, in, in, for, for many people, though not everybody, the central political unit for the British was the empire. Mm -hmm. It was the empire that was at war uh, in, in, in the Great War and in the and in the Second World War. It was the empire that had a capital city in London and a second city in, uh, in Glasgow. Uh, so the empire was central uh, 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 to imagining the space in which British people and, and perhaps their, their depend, uh, the dependent peoples lived in uh, as well. Mm -hmm. Now that goes seems to me, after 1945. There's a, there's a very strong sense of the United Kingdom. I mean, it's not usually called the United Kingdom, mm -hmm. except by the military and, and, and diplomats. It's called Britain. Yeah. Uh, uh, it's, it's, it becomes the term to describe the nation. Now, there is, um, there is some ambiguity as to whether Britain means the United Kingdom as a whole, whether it includes Northern Ireland or not. Uh, but I use the term British nation to encompass the formal territory of the United uh, Kingdom to make the point that that really is an economic unit, uh, uh, especially after after 1945, and indeed a single uh, political unit uh, to a considerable, though not not uh, not, not not total um, total degree, and that's different from what went before, and is different from what was to come later later as well. But the very idea that the United Kingdom should have a well-developed economic nationalism or indeed a, a political nationalism 
is um, a, a surprising is a surprising one for most uh, for most people, because uh, the usual argument has been that the British elite has been too liberal or too imperial in its approach uh, 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 to the economy, and therefore has not developed the necessary uh, uh, nationalism to develop the national uh, uh, economy. And um, uh, politically and culturally, we haven't had British nationalism because we're still stuck in the empire. Mm -hmm. So imperialism stands for nationalism, or at least there's, there's a conflation of imperialism and, and, uh, and nationalism. And I want to suggest that there is a very important, well, there's, there is often a conflation to be sure, but there is an analytical and political distinction between imperialism and nationalism that is, it is vitally important to grasp. Mm -hmm. Well, and one of the things that you, you talk about sort of getting back to the material aspect is that um, after 1945, there is this enormous push to make Britain much more agriculturally independent from the rest of the world. Um, you know, when you think about the time of the, the Great War, but also the, the Second World War, um, there was real threat of Britain starving to death, or at least starving to, you know, some sort of uh, unfavorable conclusion uh, to total war. Can you just talk about like um, how that was sort of designed to make Britain more independent, but also more national, and what the discourses of food are? Yes, I mean food. Food is is is, is critical. I mean food is the the great import into the United Kingdom, and the United Kingdom uh, was uh, seen as being radically different from uh, continental Europe precisely because it was not self-sufficient in, in food. And this was seen as a very great advantage. Uh, you could buy the best food from where it was cheapest. Um, uh, and as a result, the British people, it was claimed, were much better fed than the, the people of, of, continental, um, of continental Europe. Uh, now, um, as you say, the, um, the, the sea lanes to Britain could be interrupted by um, uh, enemy uh, navies, and that indeed happened in in uh, in two in two world wars. However, uh, the extent to which in those wars the United Kingdom actually uh, resorted to national supply of food has been rather exaggerated. Mm -hmm. So even in the Second World War, overseas supply of food was was absolutely uh, essential. Um, uh, but politically, there was a, a very great change. Um, there was a there was a move uh, after 1945 towards at least increasing very significantly the the amount of food to, uh, to be locally 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 grown, which implied a radical pulling back from interaction with the world uh, with the world economy. Um, Given, given the centrality of, uh, of, uh, of food, food imports. So we end up with a situation uh, um, that by the 1970s, 1980s, the United Kingdom is nearly self-sufficient in, in food for the first time since the mid-19th century. Uh, it's it's really it would have been really extraordinary for for an Edwardian, or indeed somebody even in the 1950s, um, to imagine a future where the United Kingdom exported wheat or exported beef. I mean, the United Kingdom was 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 built in the early 20th century as the place which imported both those uh, both those commodities. So it is a radical transformation in the material basis of British life. And one of the cool things in, in this book is um, 
you you see you know uh, the 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 development of new national industries or the expansion of of things uh, like the chemical industry where Britain is is seriously looking at um, coal to oil and these sort of rather elaborate um, you know chemical solutions domestic semi-autarkic solutions to problems but also you can kind of see it in the mid-century is the chemical industry feeds into the food industry you have a well-developed chemical industry with you know fertilizers and pesticides and that gets you know a national food industry as well you know you, you develop both at the same time Yes, absolutely. The uh, agriculture is also chemistry. It's also um, uh, motor manufacturing. Uh, it's also pharmaceuticals, uh, effectively. Uh, so yes, the, the, it, it's uh, it's it's a it's a very modern sector. In fact, it has the, the, the fastest rising levels of labour productivity of any sector of the of the economy after after the war. So to regard it as being backward in any way um, would, would be a, would be a mistake. But going back to the oil from coal, what's really interesting about the ninth, about those programs in the 1930s is they're essentially rejected. There is a kind of genuine liberalism still at work there where and people say that it's always going to be cheaper to import oil, mm-hmm. uh, uh, and to have a Navy to defend the tankers importing it than to, than to make uh, oil locally from, from, from local coal. Um, but that kind of thinking, becomes much much weaker after the second uh, after the second world war yeah um, can you just elaborate a little bit about energy because uh, energy in the form of coal and oil but also sort of later as uh, a byproduct of the weapons industry of nuclear weapons um, is also a major objective of the British state exactly I and mean, um, we uh, we perhaps underplay um, the significance of the British military nuclear program which was a, in fact a very early one um, it was probably the largest in the world in 1940 41 um, and um, we also uh, t- tend to forget that in the 1950s the United Kingdom and not the Soviet Union or the USA had the most ambitious nuclear electricity program in the world uh, it's really it's really quite quite extraordinary and indeed up into uh, the early 70s the United Kingdom is actually generating more nuclear electricity than any other country now that changes very radically uh, uh, after that but it, it gives one a, a measure of the ambition of the British state compared to other states to um, to go nuclear essentially and to become autonomous in uh, well to make major strides towards uh, autonomy and energy supply. Um, yeah, I think this might be a good time to talk about the military and talk about um, the warfare state as being sort of the primary focus of Britain, at least in the 1950s and through the 60s, and, and what that shape is and, and how that sort of differs from contempt or um, more familiar uh, accounts of the welfare state. At the core of most university curricula, uh, on 20th century Britain is, is essentially the idea of the rise of something called the welfare state. Um, it begins with, with the liberals in the Edwardian period, is brought to fruition by Labour in 1945, is, is at the core of the post-war settlement or social democratic uh, uh, post-war Britain or the post-war consensus. Um, and it then withers away uh, under Thatcherism mm-hmm. or neoliberalism uh, from the late 19, 1970s. Now, 
if one actually looks at what the British state is doing, uh, one gets a very different picture, uh, certainly in the first half of the century, simply because of the importance of the two world wars. Military expenditure is very much larger than welfare expenditure, as would one would expect. The difficulty is that that obvious fact is not taken into account when thinking about the nature of the British state or indeed the nature of British uh, politics. So one of the things I've done, in, especially in my book, uh, Warfare State, is to, is to take that, what I call Warfare State, seriously uh, as a set of armed services, I and mean, three by the interwar years, um, some ministries concerned with the supply of armaments in particular historical uh, uh, periods, a particular ideology of war fighting uh, uh, as well. And um, as a result of that, to rethink both the world wars, not as the civilianization of war, but the militarization of, of society. So the warfare state extends its reach uh, into, into British, the British economy and, and British, uh, British society, which gives one a very different picture uh, to the social, essentially social democratic picture of war as the kind of locomotive of social advance uh, via the Liberal Party and the and the Labour Party. So war is a is essentially a conservative conservative force, if you like, mm-hmm. um, extension of conservative, but also creative uh, creative forces. Yeah. And that one allows one to rethink the nature of the civil service, the nature of the expertise within the within the uh, the British uh, British state, as well as to uh, to rebalance the, the the picture of the British state away from the, from the welfare state. Now, of course, I'm not saying that there was no welfare state. Uh, in fact, I, in the book, I, I point to the importance of the interwar welfare state, uh, uh, and thereby uh, rather. Um, uh, play down the significance, at least in some dimensions, of what the Labour Party did after 1945. But um, uh, in the context of post-war, I stress that the 1970s are the really interesting period for the the, the British welfare state. This is when it begins to become a generous welfare uh, welfare state. This is. Um, when it becomes a, a, a really big item in, in the national uh, uh, budget. So in fact, it is bigger today than it, than it was uh, then. It is, it's reverted to being a, a, a much less generous uh, welfare state by, by British historical standards and indeed by international standards too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, you make a, a point to sort of focus on the idea that um, what happened post-1945 in the, the election of Atlee's government, uh, a lot of what was going on was consolidating what had happened before in pensions and, and in healthcare, and sort of putting it under a, a national naming or national branding to sort of forge this new nation. But in terms of what money is being spent and the resources that are um, you know, given to, to these projects, they're not nearly as large as, as sort of military uh, yes, yes, that's right. I mean, I think the key thing that, that happens under Labour is that a very, very well-developed welfare state for the working class becomes a welfare state for the whole nation. So you go from, say, 80% of the population to uh, 90% of the of the population, perhaps perhaps 100 in, 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 some, in some cases, like, like health. Um, so it, 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 is, it is an important change. 
this, that, that's going on at the level of reach of the, of the social services. But there's also a very important change in the way these social services are supplied. They're supplied now almost universally by the state itself. So we have nationalized hospitals supplying health care, though private general practice uh, uh, still. We have a, a, a fully state-led national insurance system. It doesn't rely on, on private uh, uh, um, uh, administrators, if you like, of a, of, a, of, a national, uh, of a national system. So the role of the state does become much, much more significant. And the role of, of the nation as opposed to class also becomes very important. So yes, the rise of the welfare state, I think, can be understood in, in fresh ways once one takes the, the, the post-war national framing seriously. And certainly one needs to move away from, from the view that there was essentially no welfare uh, uh, before 1945. That would, be, that would be quite, quite wrong. Yeah, I mean, also the sort of, there's the, the logical um, paradox with that, is that how could you run a modern capitalist economy without some sort of welfare system. I mean, it, 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 you, I mean you could, but it, it would be incredibly um, disruptive. And, and due to like all the exper British experience with total war and, and, and these, these sort of straining um, forces involved, it, it seems unlikely that there would be, you know, a very, very you know, kind of Dickensian system in place. Well, that's right. And, and, and one reason that... Um uh, Britain got through the Great Depression with so little in the way of uh, political trauma is, is partly due, I think, to the fact that there was a system of, uh, of unemployment support for essentially anyone who was unemployed. Um, so the, the, the safety net was was there and, and it was vital to the survival of British capitalism, absolutely. Um, if we could just change gears a little bit and talk about technology and, and Britain's, as a nation's, um, obsession with high tech. And, and you, you know, you talk a lot about how there's these sort of public intellectuals that say, well, you know, Britain was not, you know, giving enough resources to high tech development and, and it was not a technically or scientifically minded state, if not nation itself. Um, and, and how these ideas are, are not right at all. You know, they, they, they spent quite a bit of resources, maybe too much in, in some cases on, High-tech, uh, you know, highly technological things in, in military, but also civil civil uh, development. Yes, absolutely. Uh, 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 after 1945, the investment in, in the nuclear field, in uh, in aerospace, in electronics, in lots and lots of civil fields was just extraordinary. Uh, yet that was accompanied by the most influential public intellectuals. Uh, claiming that the United Kingdom was peculiarly averse, or its elite was peculiarly uh, averse to investment in science and technology. So it's a, 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 an astonishing um, uh, contradiction, uh, which was at the heart of a, a serious misunderstandings about the, the place of science and technology in, in modern British history. Yeah, you, you talk about um, how... Uh, by the 1970s, the, the state is, is almost over-leveraged in these, these high-tech, almost vanity projects like Concord or, or the advanced uh, gas reactor, these sorts of uh, developmental projects. And, and you have this great quote where you say, like, the British almost overvalued their own inventiveness. Oh, I think so. I, I, I think the, the cult of British inventiveness uh, went completely loopy after the Second World War. So British people 
uh, believe that the jet engine, television, radar, goodness knows what else, was invented only by British people. These were great gifts that the, that the British had given uh, to the world uh, and had not been properly recompensed for. So yes, it was a, a really an, an extraordinary um, a moment of both self-aggrandizement and self-abasement at the same time, because the idea was that, 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 that the United Kingdom had not properly exploited these great inventions. So in fact, it had, if anything, over-exploited them. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, and, and there's this point by, by the late 70s where um, it, it, it's fairly clear that despite these, these um, investments, it's not develop, it's not giving you the rate of return on your economy. So you can develop Concorde and have the first uh, supersonic jet airliner, but that's not going to generate the predicted uh, sort of knock-on economic effects. Well, that's right. And that, that, that's clear to, to all the experts uh, by the late 1960s. So something, something is going very, very wrong. Uh, these investments um, aren't really worth, uh, worthwhile. But it takes a very long time for the um, uh, for, for policy to to, to change, uh, and it's only really the 1980s that that uh, uh, there really is a policy of uh, of no more Concords, though, though some slip through, uh, and that's part of a radical denationalisation of the economy. Uh, so we now have uh, foreign cars, foreign television sets, uh, foreign everything uh, when it comes to manufacturers something which would have been unthinkable in 1940s, 50s, 60s, and even early 70s. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're talking about a, a very radical material change uh, in, uh, in, in the United Kingdom uh, from the 1970s onwards. That's, again, I think, not, not been sufficiently recognized. It's not enough to say we've, we've had deindustrialization, which we, which we, which we have had. Um, uh, it's, um, and nor, I think, is globalization uh, uh, enough. It is it 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 has um, involved really a, a very serious rethinking of the role of the state in the uh, in, in in the economy. What do you think uh, brings this about? In the in the book, you do talk about culture and society. There's this sort of crisis of credibility in British governments by the late 1970s, where you know the high mark was the 50s. By the 1970s, the, all these sort of um, very public scandals, but also you know, uh, threats like uh, terrorism in Northern Ireland that really putting a stress on what the state can do and, and is the state telling the truth? And, you know, do we want the state to have all these resources that appear to be being thrown towards unproductive ventures? Yeah, there's a, there, is a, there is a crisis um, and both the left and the right are attacking the, uh, the state in, in, in very different uh, ways. It's um, it's it's difficult to 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 understand exactly where all these um, these critiques came from. It's very easy to, to 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 be cliched about it and 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 point to the rise of the new right and and the and 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 the new left. But I think, in part, we have amongst the British elite a a, a return. Um, to 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 free trade, uh, 
Mm-hmm. Uh, um, uh, and that first involves going into the uh, common market, it was called the, the uh, European Economic uh, Community. And it's important to remember that the Conservative Party uh, asked to be let in to the, to the EEC in 1961. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's 16 years after the end of the Second World War, uh, before uh, decolonization has, uh, has, has, has finished. Um, at a time when the British economy is the most efficient in, uh, in, in Europe. Now, why are they doing this? Well, it's because they believe in free trade and they couldn't get global free trade. Uh, they couldn't get the European free trade area that they, they wanted. So they go into the, into, the, into the best free trade arrangement that they can find. Uh, and that is membership of the of the EC. Now they're blocked, um, but um, going into the EC becomes the great program of the Conservative Party. Um, now the uh, the um, the European uh, uh, Common Market is a um, uh, is, is 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 a work in progress, and it's not till the 1990s that we get a single European market, which makes a major difference to the tradability of of, of, uh, of goods and services uh, uh, across um, the the now European European Union. Uh, so that's a very important. Uh, factor this drive to uh, to to uh, to economic uh, to economic liberalism um, within specifically within um, within 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 Europe, and that carries with it a uh, a critique of uh, uh, nationalist and national British industrial endeavours uh, and British technological endeavours uh, as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, you you talk about. Um also, the, the situation in the late 1970s, early 1980s, this scope of unemployment and sort of economic upheaval is similar to the 1930s, similar to the Great Depression. But unlike the Great Depression, there was no alternative model that was viable. You know, you couldn't copy the Soviet Union. You couldn't copy, you know, sort of totalitarian Germany or, or some other experiment. Yes, that's right. I mean, it's very striking that the uh, that the left in 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 the early nineteen uh, eighties um, uh, compared the um, the uh, that period to the to to the to the nineteen thirties, and indeed for a very short period looked to economic planning uh, as well as Keynesianism as roots out mm-hmm. uh, of the depression, and certainly they argued that. Uh, Thatcher and Thatcherism were uh, uh, essentially a return to the, the cold-hearted, ignorant economics of the 1920s. But that didn't last very long. Uh, um, the, 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 left, uh, the left project uh, really disintegrated very, very, very quickly. Um, and within a very few years, uh, the, the, the left had essentially adopted the uh, political economy of the, of, of the right. So rather than um, uh, uh, diminish the legitimacy of of, of uh, economic liberalism, the great as it had done most certainly in the 1930s, uh, the Great Depression of the early 80s uh, reinforced reinforced the, the, the legitimacy. So that if, in effect, the blame for much of the of the crisis was was pushed onto labour, was pushed onto the interventionist state, mm-hmm. uh, and, and 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 that was very very significant. 
so we so we, we it turned out that um that that a, a different kind of economics uh, was possible and it also turned out that that you could live with many millions of unemployed for a very long time mm -hmm. uh, something which uh, again people would have thought was unthinkable in the 1960s or, or even into the early 1970s how does mrs thatcher sort of employ aspects of the developmental state to further her political program, her program of privatization uh, and sort of, you know, freer trade um, and uh, less public investment. Yes. And I mean, the usual argument, of course, is that is that um, the Thatcher uh, government uses the market uh, to achieve its uh, its aims. Uh, one argument that I make is that, in fact, it uses the states to to a very great extent to achieve its aims, including in the case of nationalized industries. Um, one would have thought, if one believed in the free market, that one would privatize loss-making industries, uh, state industries, in order to turn them into, into profitable private industries. But that's not, in fact, what the government did. They um, took state industries by the scruff of the neck and made them profitable in the, in the, in the public sector. Uh, and only once they were profitable were they privatized. Uh, in and there are other examples of this kind of approach. Education being a, being a being a very uh, very good one. Uh, there was a radical centralization of education under central state. It, became, it came to be effectively under central state uh, uh, control. The British introduced British government introduced a national curriculum. Uh, something which would have been regarded as the worst sort of continental despotism in the first half of the 20th century. Uh, yet there it was under a, an economically liberal uh, government. Mm -hmm. So Thatcherism was always about using the, the, uh, the, 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 the state, it, it, seemed, it seemed to me, although, of course, its, its ideology was a profoundly anti-state ideology. And it did lead in... in um, uh, in, in, in time to the diminution of the role of the state, the radical diminution of the role of the state in certain areas, uh, in, in housing, for example. It's a cause of the, the current housing crisis that we are, we are living, uh, living through. But in other areas, the role of the state um, increased. So expenditures on, um, on social welfare were either stable or increasing. Um, so we now have, after years of Thatcherism and quote neoliberalism, um, more being spent in both absolute and relative terms on welfare than ever before in British history. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it's also there, there are all these paradoxes but by the time you get to the 1980s where um, the British state uh, sort of develops the food production, but also energy. So North Sea oil and nuclear energy and to a lesser extent sort of privatized coal in order to overcome the need to import manufacturers. So it, it, it is this weird stepping down of sort of advanced productivist uh, economic model. Yes, I mean, I, I'm not, uh, I don't think there's any intention of um, uh, getting rid of the need to import uh, manufacturers. Uh, sorry, to export manufacturers in order to 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 uh, to, to import other uh, other things. Um, uh, there was certainly a drive to decrease imports, however. Um, now, not all these re resulted as uh, uh, as consequence of state action. In the case of oil, there was a very significant 
private sector involvement that you didn't see in other uh, energy uh, energy sectors. But the overall effect is that by the mid-1980s, the UK need import very little food and is a net exporter of energy once uh, and and that and that that means that it no longer needs a surplus of, of a balance of trade in, in, in manufacturers in order to 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 import. Now, in fact, both the export and import of manufacturers uh, both increase. So what you have is a denationalized system of manufacturing uh, production. That's the that's the really uh, the really big uh, difference. That, uh, that, 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 that emerges. But there is this very particular conjuncture where uh, the, the, uh, the British state is in the extraordinarily fortunate position that it doesn't have a balance of payments problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that is, that is fundamental to understanding what the Thatcher government um, uh, could do and indeed did. It could be indifferent. To, to, make, to net manufacturing exports uh, in a way that a, a conservative government of the 1960s simply could not be. Yeah, it ceases being a, a valid metric of economic performance and national power. Absolutely. So manufacturing, um, the balance of payments itself uh, ceases to be a measure of national virility. It is a very, very important change in how, how the economy is discussed. The economy is now a question of stock market prices and entrepreneurs not the balance of payments and investment and uh, 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 and GDP growth even. Oh, we mentioned this at, at the beginning of the podcast, talking about how by the 1980s, labor didn't have a valid alternative model. And it, it, at the end of your book, you talk about how new labor is basically that. It, it is, it, it's the lack of an alternative to Thatcherism. Can you talk about how that... Um, how that came about and, and what that really meant for Britain at the turn of the 21st century. Let, let me put a slightly different nuance on on, on, uh, on what I said uh, earlier. The um, Although it did turn out that um, uh, the, the left's ideas were pushed to one side, um, the, the early, late 70s and early 1980s were a high point in British left thinking about the British economy. Mm-hmm. So the there the were plans developed uh, based on uh, this left critique with which we started our discussion. So the left uh, did, uh, started to think through how one would have a seriously productionist uh, politics post-Thatcher. So they were looking, for example, to come out of the EEC, mm-hmm. uh, looking to control... Uh, overseas investment, I mean investment going out from, from, from the UK, looking to control uh, private enterprises to, to, to make them operate in the national interest. Now what this, uh, this left argument forgot was that something like this politics and economics had existed in the 40s, 50s and 60s. They had never been theorized by the left. Um, so there, there was a move to, to, to creating a, uh, a, a new, if you like, social democratic political uh, economy at that, at that time, which, which, needs to be, uh, which needs to be recognized. Uh, and Neil Kinnock's Labour Party was formally committed to key elements of, of, of that. 
but but you're right that that goes. Uh, 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 it's not seen as credible by um, by elites, um, and and it ceases to to be believed by a sector of the Labour Party, which emerges as New Labour. Uh, now, New Labour presented itself as as um, uh, as as getting rid of the false ideas of um, of old Labour, which were characterised as tax and spent. Uh, um, and um, that what that uh, argument did was to uh, shift attention away from the fact that what New Labour really, really did was to utterly eviscerate Labour's productionist programme uh, and essentially to embrace uh, um, uh, economic liberalism, economic Globalism. That's that's the really big, uh, big change introduced by by New Labour. Um, New Labour, in fact, and becomes the, the, a party of tax and spent, as opposed to a party of of, of intervention. Um, and they do tax and they do they do spend, um, uh, 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 especially in the early early twenty first. Uh, century. So, so actually, tax and spend is the policy of the Labour right in the 1950s and of and of New Labour, um, uh, not the policy of old Labour, which was fundamentally, I think, a national productivist policy. So, so New Labour does, in my uh, view, represent a really, really transformational change within. Um, Within, um, well, you can't say the left anymore, but within the structures of the of the of the Labour Party. So, um, uh, as far as I can say, as far as book is concerned, uh, the last Labour government left office in 1979. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that that, I and I think that makes more sense. Ultimately, I think that view is is probably a bit more right. <laughs> Um, David, but Tony Blair was right. I mean, uh, um, uh, 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 he uh, insisted that New Labour was different from from Labour. We will govern as New Labour, he said in 1997, and he did. Yeah. Um, well, David, it looks like we're we're running out of time here. I just wanted to ask you, uh, what what are your new projects? What are you working on now? Well, I've got some um, some bits and pieces, um, uh, a, a paper on uh, ideology. Uh, and history uh, in in relation to the sec- to how the Second World War is understood in Britain. I've got a paper coming out on war and welfare state uh, in in 20th century uh, Britain, and I'm looking forward to thinking about uh, production, the productive forces uh, in world history in the in the 20th century. So so I'm looking to to develop a new big project. Uh, but also certainly to to continue to to think and write about 20th century British history too. 